0: Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat for just a moment. While you're sitting, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. We know that uh, our main character, Moses, has been living in Midian. He's been in Midian for 40 years now, uh, under the sanctifying hand of God. God is preparing him to lead his people out of Egypt. He's learning the lay of the land. He's learning what it looks like to be a servant leader. Uh, And now he's going to experience something that is truly amazing. Um, And this is likely a story that most of us are familiar with. We've heard before. We've maybe studied in the past. But I want us to consider again, and it's important for us to remember... It was a means as we submit ourselves to the living and active Word of God. Uh, some of you have been on the operating table. Some of you maybe are looking forward to the operating table, where you will, you will be under the, under the examination, under the work of the surgeon. Uh, well, every time we gather on Sunday mornings, we are the ones being examined. Um, it is God's Word that is working on us and in us. Um, So I think just to be reminded of that this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the scriptures, just to uh, put us in this posture of respect, submission to God's holy word. Reading from Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." This day is going to end very differently than what Moses was expecting. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would take this, your word, your authoritative, breathed out word to us. Lord, it carries uh, your very heart, your character to us. And pray now that you would teach us uh, in these moments. Uh, We cannot expect this in any way apart from the working of your Holy Spirit. In and through your word. Lord, make us attentive. Guide the words of your servant now in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you Maybe seated. Um, there's a girl right around the corner. Uh, Amanda lived on Van Auken Street. And at about seven, eight, nine years old, I think that's when girls boys still have cooties. And so we let each other know that. Um, we were not the closest of friends. And so one, particu- one afternoon after school, as I'm, I'm coming home from school, one of the streets down to, to where our house was, it was a pretty steep hill, and I turned and I could see her riding her bike um, from school. Her younger sister was with her. And after we exchanged pleasantries as she went by, uh, I thought, if I, if I take this stone and I sort of throw it in that general direction of where she's riding, wasn't directly at her, but I thought, you know, I wonder what the geometry would look like. Um, And so sadly, it was was one of the most amazing and unfortunate throws I have ever made. Um, So she stayed on her bike, but you could see her hand went like this, and she sort of crouched down. And her sister, who was on a bike behind her, saw this, and she reminded me of what I knew instantly, that I was a dead man. And um, so had I continued to go home the normal route, I would have gone right by her house. Well, that was not an option. So I went the back way through the woods, hid in the house. And sure enough, within the hour, uh, there's um, the doorbell. And I can picture Mr. Lipinski standing in the door. Now, Mr. Lipinski was a large, loud, and opinionated man normally. Normally. So now his daughter is standing next to him and she's got blood on her head. Um, it is the very mercy of God that he did not skin me alive. Um, but he, he put the fear of God in me. Um, and my, I, I, I ran the story by my mom again this last week and she said she was standing there just quaking because she didn't know what he was going to say or why he was accusing me of this and I hadn't shared her with her yet. Um, so you know, any time after that, when I thought about doing something at that level of stupidity, <laughs> uh, I thought of Mr. Lipinski standing in there. I can see his face now. Um, it definitely had this life-changing impression uh, on me. Uh, maybe you have had some sort of encounter like this. Um, something that just changed your outlook. Maybe even changed the whole course of your life. You know it can happen as we as we meet certain people. Um, It is sure to happen if we have an encounter like this with the living God. Um, And I think of, you know, Abraham or Isaiah or Saul in the New Testament, and that road to Damascus. They have these life-altering encounters uh, with God. It changes them. Uh, They have a new direction or a new outlook. And it's unmistakable here in Exodus 3 that Moses has had one of these life-changing encounters with the Creator God. And God shows Moses as much as He tells him about his own uh, character. So this this really is a life-altering commission. Inside this commission, we have both the the call and the command uh, that God gives to Moses. It's a call, a command that's just grounded uh, in His character. So, it's another day of shepherding for Moses. He's looking for uh, some vegetation, some greenery for the sheep. And uh, he travels well west of Midian, of where home was. Actually, creeping back towards Egypt. Um, in the place where he was leading his sheep, most would agree that this is uh, the southern portion of the sinai peninsula if you can picture the red sea and it's got those two arms those two antenna sticking up well that sinai peninsula is right in between there in that southern portion and uh, there's a large mountain uh, there called jebel musa which sticks up in this it's a rather prominent feature in the surrounding landscape And to this day, those who spend more time in that area, Bedouins and so forth, refer to that as Moses' mountain. Um, And we learn here in verse 1 that this is the mountain of God, the mountain that Moses would come back to with the people of Israel. We didn't read that verse, that's in verse 12. But this is Mount Sinai, a very significant place for Moses and for God. The interaction that they would have on this mountain is absolutely essential to the covenant. Um, so you could say this is the first mountaintop experience for Moses. And just consider for, for a minute how many significant things occur throughout the course of redemptive history on a mountain. Um, you know, again, I think of Abraham as he prepares to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God provides the sacrifice on the mountain. Moses and his people are going to come back to this very place, like we just mentioned, receive the law in Exodus 19. Joshua reads this law between two mountains, Joshua chapter 8. In the New Testament, we find here's Moses again on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. Jesus is tempted on a mountain, he delivers a great sermon on a mountain. He commissions His disciples from the mountain. Uh, We'll come back to that one. But mountains are significant. Uh, This is no uh, coincidental meeting spot for Moses. So the Lord gets His attention. He gets His attention in a way that gets the attention of most people. And that's fire. Um, For those who are not running or trying to escape or in danger from the fire, they're usually flocking towards it remember in the, the church that I served up north, a house right across the street from the church caught on fire. And up north, they have basements and houses. And so it started in the basement, and you could see the smoke sort of starting to billow out of the little windows, and uh, the police car was there first, and he was just kind of watching, and then everyone uh, shows up. But throughout the day, as it took this entire house, uh, there, was, there was a sizable crowd for a small town, just... Uh, watching this. So the fact that the bush was on fire wasn't such a big deal. But it stayed on fire. And that was the big deal. I mean, these these thorn bushes, this type of, of shrubs in this area, they burn like that. So now this has Moses' attention. Is this magic? Is this some sort of Egyptian sorcery going on here? Maybe he'd seen some things growing up in Egypt that were attributed to the gods of Egypt. But he soon learns that this is not Egyptian sorcery, uh, but the presence of the creator God in this fire. Uh, again, that, that's something else that's not unusual to the story, is it? Uh, we see the Lord leading His people, pillar of, of cloud and fire by night through the wilderness. Fire will cover Mount Sinai. It will cover the tabernacle, which we'll read in the last verse of, of the book of Exodus. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses warns the people of idolatry and forgetting uh, the covenant, he says the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Uh, So God is showing Moses who he is before he tells him. Um, It really is a a literal warm-up to the power and the glory of God over all of his uh, creation. Which we think of this in God's character. God's He never dims. He never runs out of fuel. He is self-existent. Entirely self-sufficient on His own. There is nothing that God depends on, no one that He depends on uh, to sustain Him. Uh, He is entirely other than His creation. He he affirms this with the words uh, to Moses. we read this phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's something we read uh, nearly 60 times in the Old Testament, but this is the strongest case For a a manifestation of the presence of God uh, in this fire, this theophany. So, Moses, do, do not come any closer. The very ground on which you are standing is holy. Messengers of God don't say that, God says that. This place is set apart because the one who is present in the fiery bush is set apart. Set apart as holy. Moses was not this way. And we assume that he took his sandals off and he hides his face upon realizing who is actually speaking to him. So we think he had heard enough or learned enough about this God that this posture of reverence and humility was in order for him. So this encounter with the living God is already shaping Moses, shaping the way he responds, how he worships. There should be a humility, a reverence, a sense of awe that that informs our worship. anytime we're gathered in the presence of God, before a holy God, you know, if there's one thing that the church in our time and our place has lost, something that the late Doctor Archie Spruill was a pressure point of his, that's the holiness of God, sense of His holiness, our God is the transcendent one. He is, he is high and lifted up, mighty in, in power and splendor. He's altogether pure, altogether righteous and true. So we approach Him with reverence and awe and our attitude or our posture, hiding our faces, as it were, from His holiness. And we did this just a little while ago. Every time we come into His presence for worship. or It's during a prelude, as we hear the Word of God calling us to worship, we are confronted with His holiness. And we must fall before Him. Fall before Him in praise. Now, from another angle, let me approach that. This is not optional for Moses. For him to keep walking to infringe upon the holiness of God would be extremely dangerous. Or for anyone to approach a holy God not prepared to do so. We come back to the mountain in Exodus 19. It's it's a very clear parallel of this. The only way Moses or anyone else can can get closer to the holy presence of God is if they are holy. So did you hear the weight of this? For God's people. Do you hear the weight of this for all humanity? Unless we are holy, we cannot enter into the presence of God. We'll be destroyed. Remember Uzzah? Second Samuel 6. And he reaches out to steady the ark of God with the assumption that he is cleaner or more worthy than the ground. Dead holiness of God. This is something we don't trivialize. We can't just gloss over this. The day is coming. Everyone in this room, everyone that you know, everyone that you will know, will stand in the presence of a holy God. And unless He sees you, unless He sees me as holy and worthy to stand in His presence, what do you think will happen? I mean, to to be destroyed or completely annihilated with no conscious existence would only be the hope at such times. Um, and the, the revelation given to John, and that, that should make our hair stand on end at the very least. The just wrath of God for eternity. It's a very real existence in a very real place for a very long time. Um, that's it. That's the future. Unless we are holy. So here's the beauty of the Gospel. Here is the greatest news that we could possibly hear. Uh, But don't take my word for it. If you want to turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. It's one of many places. Paul, Paul says what seems to be foolishness to the world, God uses to save. I'm just going to read a few verses here. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him or from God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Do you hear what Christ is? Do you hear what He has done for those who believe? And later, the same church, Paul would say, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has taken the filth of our sin upon Himself. Robed us in His righteousness. It's still His righteousness, but it's credited to us. If you believe, if you are united to Christ by faith, then Jesus is your holiness. When you you stand before God the Father, when you approach the holiness of God by choice today, in that great day of judgment, He sees you as He sees His only Son in all purity, in all holiness. Colossians 1 says, He, this is Jesus, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him if indeed you continue in the faith. So the holiness of Jesus is ours. And by faith, that holiness continues to grow every day. So now as those bound to Christ, we can approach the holiness of God. We approach His throne of grace with confidence, even boldness, because we have one and only one boast, and that's Jesus. I mean, this should really move us, shouldn't it? It should move us to repentance, move us to praise, to thanksgiving. Maybe it moves us towards our neighbors a little bit more who think that they can just keep their sandals on and are going to, you know, at the time of death, just reach up and steady themselves because they're really not all that bad. We can worship this morning, and you can worship as a family, personally, commune with God, only through faith and dependence upon the Lord Jesus. So we come into His presence confidently, but not casually. The worship of God who dwells In and among his people, and that's something that may not always be comfortable for us or convenient for us. When you take the sandals off, the desert sand is hot under your feet. Uh, It's not real comfortable or convenient. So, if we're looking for comfortable, if we're if we're looking for that doesn't require anything of me in in our experience and approaching God and in our worship, then we need to consider carefully who we're worshiping, what we're worshiping. And we're not, you know, we're not throwing off our sandals. Maybe some of the kids are when they come through the door. We're not throwing off our sandals when we come through that door for worship. Although sometimes, sometimes it may be helpful put us in a right posture, heart and mind for worship. But because believers in Christ, we're the very temple of God. Individually, uniquely as we come together, the Spirit of Christ indwells us. Now it is our very lives that we live in, as an expression of humility and service and reverence and awe. There's um, something else we need to see in this call before we go to the command. Um, the Lord repeats Moses' name. He calls him personally. calls him specifically. And this is a, this is a repetition of endearment here. Um, there's a personal affection behind this. My grandmother on my mother's side still calls me Bradley John. And I'm okay with that. I don't even have to be in trouble. And she can call me Bradley John. Um, because she, she's doing this out of affection. She knows me. She knows my, my background. She knows who I am. It's the personal address that God uses. We see it, we'll see it again in Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, as he calls him. Again for, for Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We hear this from the mouth of Christ. He hangs on the cross, my God, my God. So Moses can respond, yes, here I am. This calling is from one who knows him personally, cares about him. So the Lord tells him that he is the God of his father, the God of uh, the patriarchs. So pay attention, Moses. This is the God of, of Israel's history, and oh, it's the God of Israel's present. Um, and we see that in verses 7 through 10. And if you're a Christian, then God has called you. He's called you personally. He knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. He gives you a personal call to trust Him. We are called to believe and embrace Christ, to use the language of the catechism, as He is freely offered to us in the Gospel. Have you heard that call to you? You responded. How are you responding? So once the Lord has Moses' full attention, he shares his concern, his care for his people. God is watching over all that he's made, but he is particularly in tune to the suffering of his people. He's aware. And not only is he aware, he's going to do something about it. It's really reinforced what we read at the end of chapter 2. He sees, he knows, he remembers the compassion and the love of God doesn't say stagnant. It moves him to act. And he has all the power in the world to do so. That's reinforced in verses 7 and 9. Now, one of his promises falls to the ground. He has promised to deliver. Maybe you heard just how complete that deliverance is. It, it's, it's from both sides. If you watch one of these superhero um, episodes, you know the bad guy is vanquished and you know, the day is saved. But oftentimes the victims are left hanging. You know, the, the superhero brings the top of the building and leaves them there. Now they're at the top of the building. Or he stops the train, but the train's dangling over the precipice when he's done. Now what? This is not the salvation of God. Verse 8, he will deliver his people from the hand of the Egyptians. Okay, so that their oppression, that suffering will cease. But he's also delivering them to something to a good and expansive land. A land that's going to supply all of their need and more. He's not just taking them from the bad. He's, he's giving them much good. It's a place of abundance, a place of joy. Where they can live and, and worship the Lord before all nations. Um, just a marvel. A marvel of God uh, uh, does this. And you think, how, how is He going to make this happen? He will come down to deliver, and he has chosen Moses uh, to do this, to lead the people out of Egypt. And that's a command in verse 10. And there's multiple imperatives here. It's hard to pick up as we read on that. But he just go. I'm, I'm going to send you, go, and bring my people out. Those are commands. Um, I was walking through the, the old armory, now the MacArthur Museum, a couple of Saturdays ago, and they have the display of, of all of the, the war bond posters. You know, they need you. and Uncle Sam, I need you. Okay, here's God pointing to Moses. I need you. I, I'm sending you on this assignment. So Moses has really come full circle here, hasn't he, in his preparation. Now he's uh, you know, it's time now to go from shepherding the four-legged sheep to a much larger flock of two-legged sheep in the wilderness. God is the shepherd of his people, but he is designating Moses as this under-shepherd. I mean, what a grace of God to use Moses in this way, to use ordinary folk like you and like me for His purposes. Um, you know, this was not a responsibility that Moses was expecting, um, not a chore that he's going to accomplish in his own strength, his own power, or on his timeline. I mean, this is God's power. This is this is His method. He's prepared Moses not to take part in this. We need to hear in this word that, uh, that the God who delivers, the God who saves, this is the God who sends. He's, he's prepared Moses, he's sending him. God says, I, I, I know you, I know your circumstances, I have rescued you, now go. Um, and The parallels we find here between the work of Christ and God coming down to rescue his people, they're unmistakable. By His own initiative, God stoops down. He condescends to us through the incarnation of His Son. Jesus, that good and faithful shepherd. He leads His people out of bondage. He frees us from the slavery of sin. The eternal wrath of God, not just from this, but to something far greater. Oh, that heavenly promised land. There's joy, peace for eternity. And this is a deliverance. It far surpasses the deliverance of Moses. And it shows us the great, the great depths of God's love. Undeserving, oppressed, enslaved to our sin, He comes to our rescue. He saves us, not for ourselves, but to go for His glory. On that mountain, Jesus says to His disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And we may not be sitting on a mountain this morning, although it's a pretty good climb up Bearpaw. paw. Um, maybe it's Mount Sherwood. Okay, from Mount Sherwood. Now here, go and make disciples. If you submitted your life to Christ and that 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 command is for you. It's a call to the church to, to move outward with the gospel. And then the carrying out of that call will be it'll be unique to you to your circumstances. God's going to do His work. He will draw the nations to Himself and He will do that through ordinary people, through the mundane, ordinary parts of life. Love how God does the the remarkable out of the unremarkable. So, what, What is He calling you to? It's really not a matter of if, but where and how is He calling you personally? Um, you know, the time you spend at home and at work, if your work takes you outside the home. Um, everyone in this room has a calling at home. Um, to love, to serve, to build up family members, uh, roommates, guests, to be hospitable to our neighbors. Um, and then when that work takes us outside the home, we work For the pleasure and glory of God in every legitimate work. Vocation, God is at work. Washing the windows, cleaning the toilets, changing the diapers, weeding the garden is all part of God's creation care. And it's not less important or less valuable than standing behind a pulpit. The apostle says in Ephesians 2, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just think on that. Consider how your work and how it is you spend your days collides with the call to make disciples. Even to to show integrity and humility and truth and beauty and goodness. This is all to show forth Christ. So really get a sense of God's holiness in this passage that he has a deep compassion and care for his people he is faithful and he will act which is done definitively in jesus paul would say to that same corinthian church if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has gone behold the new has come so to know and to trust jesus is to have that life-changing encounter We know Moses has some questions, right? He has two main questions to this commission. And that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray together. Lord God, we can't not fathom the depths of your love, your compassion. That you see, that you know, that you remember. You know us completely and you, Lord, are mighty to save. We praise You this morning in the splendor of Your holiness and we look to You as our Deliverer. Use Your Word now, Lord, to penetrate our hearts. Move us in faithfulness to Your call. We pray this in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.